0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Art House Garage, Arkansas's art house podcast. Today we've got a very special episode, including a conversation with filmmaker Jeff Nichols about his new film, The Bike Riders. A little context, I'm recording this on Friday, October 13th. This coming weekend is Filmland, the annual film festival from the Arkansas Cinema Society. Last weekend was Filmland Arkansas, featuring all Arkansas films, which was wonderful. I actually got to run a couple of the filmmaker Q&As, which was great fun. This coming weekend, they're showing some big ticket films, like a film called Eric LaRue, which is the directorial debut of Michael Shannon. That one stars Alexander Skarsgård and Judy Greer. Also playing is a film called The Lady Bird Diaries, which is a documentary about Lady Bird Johnson, the first lady of Lyndon Johnson. There's also an upcoming Netflix movie called Nyad about the famous swimmer Diana Nyad. That one stars Annette Bening and Jodie Foster. And a film called Hard Miles, which I've had the pleasure to see. It's a wonderful film from Arkansas director R.J. Daniel Hanna and starring Matthew Modine. The other film showing this weekend is The Bike Riders from director Jeff Nichols. I'm guessing most people listening to this are familiar with Jeff Nichols, but in case you aren't, he's the director of films like Mud, Take Shelter, Midnight Special, and Loving. Jeff Nichols is also from Arkansas and helped start the Arkansas Cinema Society, so it's a pretty significant thing that they're showing his film this weekend. In fact, They're making it into a big event with dinner and an auction, all sorts of things. There's more details about that event later in this episode, and you can find info at filmland.org. I will also mention that they have added an encore screening of the bike riders on Monday. I was invited out to a press junket yesterday where myself and about six other people interviewed Jeff Nichols alongside executive director of ACS, Catherine Tucker, and we got to ask all about the film and the event this weekend. I took my microphone with me and recorded the whole thing, and I'm going to play that for you now. So what you're about to hear is sort of a popcorn-style interview, so you'll hear my voice along with a few other press people, and you'll hear Jeff Nichols and Catherine Tucker. One quick note, Jeff and Catherine's audio sounds great. The rest of the room is a little choppier. I don't think you'll have trouble understanding anything, but it's not the usual controlled environment of most episodes of this podcast all right without further ado here is a conversation with jeff nichols and katherine tucker
1: i've read about the film and i saw you talked about how you were inspired by a book of pictures that just kind of created this idea in your mind can you talk a little bit about that
2: yeah sure so um in 1965 danny lyon was in his early 20s And uh, he was a student at the University of Chicago, and he was looking for an outsider group to photograph. And he ended up pairing with the Chicago Outlaws, which at the time was kind of a smaller regional club. Um, He didn't know that they would eventually grow to become the Outlaws, which is the second largest motorcycle gang in the world. Um, But he was really into new journalism at the time. Uh, So when he made the book, he... The only text in the book were interviews that he recorded with some of the writers and, and one of their wives. And um, the book, honestly, you know, has kind of been a, a cornerstone of, of new journalism for a really long time. Um, the first issue that I uh, came across was a reissue in 2003. And it was really important because it had a, a new forward to it where he kind of revisited what had happened to the guys that he rode with, what had happened to the club that he rode with back in the mid-60s. And in that forward, he talked about kind of what happened to it. And there was this really beautiful line where he said, uh, he was talking about the fate of the, the guy that started it. He said, uh, that was the end of the golden age of motorcycles and that was the end of the club that I rode with in 1965 and that kind of gave a shape to this film this idea that you would go from 1959 when the club started as a regional club almost a social group over the course of the 1960s into the early 70s when it metastasizes into a proper gang so that's kind of the shape of the film but the truth is the photographs themselves are they're beautiful um they're compelling um but when you combine them with these interviews, and you actually get to hear from the people, it creates this kind of three-dimensional portrait of a subculture. Probably better than any, any, you know, any portrait I've ever seen. It's a very full portrait. And it kind of felt like ingredients for a film. You know? um, certainly ingredients for an analysis of, of a subculture and, and really understanding why people would join a group like this, how their brains are working all kind of lodged in the mid 1960s which is a pretty fascinating time Um, so yeah that was the bike riders by danny Lyon.
0: um i was gonna ask you know this is your biggest film so far in terms of budget and size of the production um kind of a cool moment in your career and i think saturday or sunday is the the arkansas premiere here so how does it feel you know bringing this back to arkansas
2: um it's really interesting you know I would like to say that the impetus for the Arkansas Cinema Society was just to help the community, um, which is what we're trying to do. It's
3: 99. <laughs> the truth is, the
2: conversation with Catherine really started when I came back in 2016 to screen Loving. Um, there was just really no infrastructure in place in Little Rock specifically. You know, there was no group email chain even to say, "Hey, film lovers, uh, I'm showing my new film and I'm bringing it back home." Uh, it was really just kind of texting buddies and saying, does anybody want to come watch my movie? Um, and, you know, kind of finding a theater and and kind of doing all that. And it seemed like there was a real void uh, in the community in terms of just gathering people together that that wanted to talk about and know about film. And so, you know, it's been a long time since I've made my last film because that was when I started with Catherine, the Cinema Society, so really, this is the culmination of seven years now of, of work. And it's kind of amazing to bring it back into the community, but into the community with this infrastructure that Catherine and all these people have helped build. It's really fulfilling um, and really exciting. Not to mention now we're going to get to screen it in this beautiful building um, in a theater that I have yet to actually walk inside. Um, it feels like... Uh, I think because of that, the length of period that it's taken me to make this new film, you can really feel um, that growth. You can feel the shift because of the work that these people have done. So that part's the most exciting part.
4: Um, I am a student journalist at uh, Little Rock Central High for the Tiger News. What's your name? Elizabeth Rigsby. Okay,
2: someone, someone else reached out. out. <laughs> uh, I'm, <a>, I'm <laughs> going to try to do another interview with Central.
4: Yeah, uh, Jaya.
2: Uh, I can't remember the name. I'll find yeah. out. I'll talk to you after.
4: Um, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about, like, how... As you make... You've made a lot of movies that are Arkansas-centric and, like, have that kind of, like, southern feel throughout them. But as you, like, venture outside of the South, how do you take those experiences that you've had in Little Rock and at Central and Arkansas in general, and how do you uh, make that prevalent in films outside of the South? And Sure. Yeah.
2: You know... The, the truth is, um, this is really the first film that f- doesn't feel Southern to me. Take Shelter was also made in Ohio, but that was written for Arkansas, and I didn't transpose very much. You know, um, This film, though, and one reason why it took me so long to write it, because I discovered that book 20 years ago, was because it was in a Midwestern voice. It was in a voice... And a subculture that I didn't feel comfortable in. I wasn't part of a motorcycle club or gang or anything else. Um, what I find interesting, though, is the people and the way their brains work, the way their psychology works. It's very similar to to working class people here. You know, I saw a lot of um, of things that felt familiar to me from Arkansas in the words of these people. You know, from Chicago in the '60s. I think. It's kind of interesting that it's less about um, place and it's more about socioeconomic level, and um, and it's really just about I don't know normal people and how they're living their lives. Um, but I will say this specifically about Arkansas: um, I just think some of the greatest storytellers in the world are from here, and and that's when I'm asked about Arkansas, that's kind of what I I go to. Um, and that's what I try to take forward into all the films. Uh, I'm not trying to work in obscurity. I'm not trying to make art films. I'm trying to make films that connect with people. And the way you do that is through telling a really good story, hopefully. Um, and that's 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 the biggest thing I, I think I took growing up in Arkansas, is there's just some great storytellers here.
5: Um, yeah, thanks so much for doing this. This is, yeah. this is really cool. Um, yeah, so like, I'm beginning to understand the, the subject material pretty well, but uh, to you, what's like, you know, the central question of, of this film? What, what's it meaning to explore beyond just you know documenting a, a period of time in history?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, there are two things. Um, the biggest is a, is a feeling, and I've tried to enunciate it on this press tour, and some days I do better than others. Um, by the time you get to the end of this film, I want you to have a very specific feeling. Uh, and the closest term I can come to uh, it is nostalgia. It's the idea that there was this very specific thing that happened in this very specific place at a very specific time and is now gone. We're not going to get to revisit it. And that's a kind of a sad feeling, but it's also a beautiful feeling because there, there are good memories attached to it. Um, and that's really where this film takes you by the end is this idea that we got to touch something that was impermanent. And because it doesn't exist anymore, it's beautiful, Uh, but it's also a little sad. Uh, This film is really trying to just make that expression uh, kind of occur for the audience. The other thing, more specific to kind of the thematic core, is really, and this is true for a lot of my films, it's an examination of masculinity. American masculinity in particular, but there's a tension in masculinity. Um, And I think we've recognized it over the last five years more than ever. But on one side of masculinity, you have tropes, you have a lot of toxicity, you have things um, that are aggressive and dangerous. But I think on the other side of masculinity, you have things that are really romantic and beautiful and alluring. And there's a tension between those two things. And this film kind of holds that tension, partly in these guys, these guys being torn between just being friends and also being something more aggressive, but also in our lead character, who's not a guy, who is this woman, Kathy, who was interviewed by Danny, Um, and then I created a fictionalized version of her for this film. But she's kind of stuck in it. She's this example of that tension, she sees it for what it is and all the stupidity and all the violence and all of the negative things, but she's also attracted to it. Now, that's not to say she's attracted to the toxicity. That's not what I'm saying. There are other things that are attractive. And um, and to not admit that or to not deny that, I think we're not being honest about the realities of masculinity. And so that's really the thematic core of the film.
5: I want to ask, so I know you've been thinking about this for like 20 years, so what finally pushed you to create this film? Um, because it is like such a different direction.
2: Yeah, this one feels different than the others. Um, the truth is, if I'm being really, really honest, I just got backed into a corner. Um, I'd kind of developed this, this spiel for the film that was almost like a party trick. I could be at dinner and say, you want to hear about my 1960s motorcycle movie? And I could, in five minutes, tell you a story that made you think I was really smart and made you think I had this whole thing figured out, but I really didn't. Um, And it wasn't until after a a big project of mine had fallen through, I was developing an alien film, like a sci-fi film, at Fox, and uh, we were on the one-yard line with it. Um, I'd cast really famous actor and uh, we were scouting locations and, um, and then Disney closed the deal to buy Fox and they canceled the film and I'd been working on it three, four years. Um, it was pretty devastating. And I just kind of picked my head up and was like, I need something to make. And uh, this was the thing. It was finally time. Um, that was the real impetus to sit down and finally kind of get over the hump in terms of my, my, Insecurity about writing in this voice and writing with this subculture. I wish I had a better answer. Like you know, some other thing clicked in my mind about um, the world around me. But it—it's funny the way these things go. I carry a lot of ideas around in my head, um, at the same time, and and you know, the stars just kind of align, and it becomes time to sit down and finally write one. And and that's that's what happened here.
5: Um, yeah, so you've had this idea for quite a while uh, How has it Has it changed any uh, Some of those 20 years Like was there any like, things that changed Because of like, the strikes or anything That uh, kind of went on in the past Still do
2: I don't know you know I think I wouldn't say it changed it's just developed You know I think It took me a while to come to The understanding of how Of how the structure of the film would work it's a very odd structure. It's unlike any of my other films. It was written like unlike any of my other films. Usually, I, I I outline everything. I have note cards and they go up on a cork board. And before I start typing, I can watch every single scene. That's not how this was written. Um, I'm not really sure why I I would just write one scene and then look at it and say, okay, well, what do I want to have happen next? And what do I want to have to happen next? And honestly, the first hour of this film flows arguably better but differently than any of my other films you'll see it um and and i think it just took me a while to break down a narrative structure that allowed me to write in that style and the narrative structure that i came upon was the most interesting interview in the entire book is with this woman kathy and she's talking about this man she married benny um and I said, well, all right, this is a hyper-masculine subculture. It would be interesting to have it interpreted through the eyes of this woman, um, especially because so much of the interpretation is, is set forth in those interviews. I mean, the way she talks about them but also talks about herself, it's very, it's at times, funny, introspective, sometimes heartbreaking, sometimes frustrating. She just seemed like a really compelling character. So I said, okay, well, what if I took this one interview, and I broke that into three different time periods. So she's actually speaking in 1965, 1969, and 1973. And that actually allowed me um, to then move wherever I needed to move within the story of, in this case, the Vandals, which is the fictionalized club that I created. We could go to 1959 and see how Johnny, Tom Hardy's character, started the club. But we could actually go all the way to 1971 and see how it ended. And, and these three interviews didn't have to be linear. Um, in fact, you'll get 1973 Kathy speaking and then 1969 Kathy, then back to 65 Kathy because it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter when we're checking in with these interviews. What matters is that the flow of the story and the progression of the club is, is getting checked in with. It's honestly one of the most complex things I've ever written um, and, and I'm very proud of it because the ultimate goal wasn't just to tell a story from point a to point b it was to express this feeling that i talked about and um and once i broke that structure i felt like i was i was off to the races so that's really what changed and what developed and you know my answer might have been pretty cute about being backed into a corner but all that time like i'm 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 developing that structure and that idea um it, it took a lot of work to be honest
5: Uh, kind of a follow up but I know you're like a student of like classic cinema so did you do a lot of research on like the kind of the the motorcycle movie in the 60s like the wild one
2: yeah for sure and you'll see in the film and I knew this you know there's an anecdote in the book that um, the real Johnny was watching um, Marlon Brando and the wild one on TV when he got the idea for the club and it ends up being really integral to the way we created our Johnny you know the way Tom Hardy built his voice, the way Tom Hardy built that character, it's kind of based off the idea that this guy is, he's actually not the leader of the club. He's kind of a fraud. Um, he's kind of playing the part of Marlon Brando, which is why Tom built his voice the way that he did. It's really awesome. But then I also read this other anecdote. You know, by the time you get kind of around in terms of the cycle of a subculture, it starts to become a bit of an affectation of itself. And by the early 70s, now it felt like these guys were playing the part of the bike rider, the part of the biker that society had kind of defined. And this guy's getting paid, it's Norman Reedus' character, this guy's getting paid five bucks to sit outside a theater screen, easy rider, um, to try to lure customers in. So he's really just kind of a, like I said, an affectation of himself. Um, but if you, if you take those bookended, you know, films, it's pretty amazing to look at the wild one which is, to be honest, a fairly stilted film. Like it opens with Marlon Brando on a fake bike with like fake rear projection. It's kind of cheesy. And then you get all the way to Easy Rider only over the course of a decade. I mean, just, it, just in terms of the shift in cinema language, um, you see the shift that happened in culture over a decade. It's pretty extraordinary. Um, so in that sense, there are direct references to, to cinema. But the truth is, it's Goodfellas. I mean, um, I had two DVDs my junior year of college. One was Fletch, which I've talked a lot about, and the other was Goodfellas. So it would either be like, do you want to watch Fletch or do you want to watch Goodfellas? And um, I watched Goodfellas more than probably any other film. And if you look at the structure of the first hour of that film, I just think it's brilliant. It is just trying to um, get you to feel and romanticize a subculture that is pretty violent. Um, but if I were ever to ask you, hey, what's the plot of Goodfellas? You probably wouldn't say it's about the guys who pulled off the Lufthansa heist. That's not really what you think of, even though technically that's what the plot of that movie is. But the first hour of that movie is not that. It's really about, hey, let's fall in love with what Henry Hill's falling in love with, which is being a gangster. Um, that structure is really what I turned to because it doesn't make any linear sense Um, other than you're just watching this guy's progression the bike riders is even a little stranger because you're not just watching one guy's progression Um, you're kind of watching a whole group come together but that was the big inspiration for it
1: that's interesting you said that because when you're talking about subculture and entering a subculture it made me think of films like goodfellas or even boogie nights but then i heard you mention fletch Uh Which uh I please think, let's talk about Fletch. Yeah. Uh, I heard you mention that. And a filmmaker that I think doesn't get talked about very much is Michael Ritchie. Michael Ritchie. And
2: uh The Incredibly he, True Confessions of a Teenage Murdering Mom. <laughs> Cheerleader Murdering Mom. Yeah, is that, that the Holly Hunter film that was a made for TV HBO movie? Have you seen this? Uh uh-uh. Go find it immediately. Okay, I will. It's brilliant. Okay. And it actually sorry, finish your question. Okay. I was just gonna that. say like one of
1: the things that you notice in films like Smile, or even Bad News Bears is just how he captures that Americana feel. And I think that's similar to some of the things you do in your movies. I was just wondering if he serves as an inspiration for you as a...
2: Well, yeah. So this film in particular that I mentioned, so it's based on a true story of the mom of a high school cheerleader in Texas who was so jealous of the competition that she tried to hire a hitman to kill them. Um, The hitman that she hired, which I think was a brother-in-law recorded all of the conversations. And Michael Ritchie took all of those recorded conversations and turned those into dialogue. It's Holly Hunter and it's Bo Bridges. A
1: t- it was a TV movie?
2: It was an HBO movie. Okay. It's freaking brilliant. And, and it's dialogue unlike anything you've ever heard. And it's actually really important to the bike riders. No one's ever asked me this question before. I've never talked about it. Um, because in about 2014, I started to approach Danny Lyon about, The possibility of turning, you know, his photos into a movie. Mm -hmm. And he gave me all of the original audio recordings of uh, these people. And it was incredible. And it was kind of like training wheels. Because I was so nervous about writing in this voice, I just started typing this, what this woman was saying. Verbatim. All the ums, all the pauses, you know, because they're Midwestern. There's a lot of you knows. Mm -hmm. And... And then I just kind of took flight, and then I started to write my own lines in that voice. But it all came from original audio, which is exactly what Michael Ritchie did so brilliantly in this other movie. I'm sure I'm getting the title wrong. It's something, it's like the incredibly true story of the cheerleader murdering mom.
1: Okay, so, uh, uh, yeah, I I'll, I'll, I'll love his films. I'll definitely look into that. It's <laughs> great. Yeah, and I mean, I'd never even heard of it until you mentioned it. The, there you, you go, go. So that's what I'm like, here for. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about your cast, so obviously, huge incredible cast quite an ensemble a lot of the people are kind of like feel like up and comers a little bit with Jodie Comer and Austin Butler and mm-hmm. Mike Feist who have done incredible work but feels like they have so many years ahead of them was that something you were looking for or just what was the casting like for this?
2: I guess you could say you know always yes you know you uh, you want people that are going um, to grow over the course of you making your film I, I don't think I had any idea that Austin you know, um, with Elvis would, would touch the zeitgeist the way that it did um, because when I cast him I hadn't seen Elvis yet Elvis hadn't come out yet I'd seen the trailer um, but you know I've just always been incredibly lucky when it comes to casting and I have worked with some of the greatest actors in the world um, and I've usually worked with them right before they become incredibly famous and successful um, or in McConaughey's You know, example, become successful again. But, um, you know, the truth is that's not really why you cast people. Um, I'm a firm believer that there is the right person for a part. Uh, You don't always know it, and sometimes you have to discover it. I certainly did with Austin but um, and with Jody because I didn't know Jody's work. Uh, but my casting director Francine Maisler was like you oh um, uh, god was like you gotta meet Jody you gotta meet Jody you gotta talk to Jody the reason I cast her one is because she said yes because um, before I got onto the first Zoom call with her I got a call from Francine and she was like just just get her to say yes um, it's the same call she actually made before Midnight Special when I was gonna get on the phone with Adam Driver for the first time who I did not know she was like just get him to say yes So I've learned to trust Francine Um, but really when I talked to Jody she had read the script the way she talked about Kathy is the way I felt about Kathy I think it's really easy when you're making uh, a story about people from a certain socioeconomic level it's really easy to look down on them and I don't do that I don't do that when I write Um, I think it's actually a bad way to connect with people um, with an audience is if you're if you're looking down on your characters and she spoke about she spoke about Kathy the same the same way I felt in, in terms of she found her funny and frustrating uh, but ultimately she spoke about her kind of with love and affection and so that's when I kind of knew okay well hopefully she will say yes because I think she understands this character at the time I didn't know that she happened to be one of the greatest actors in the world which you all don't know yet because you haven't seen the film but she is like it is st- what she pulled off and you may not even realize it once you see the film because if you don't understand that she's british you don't really understand all of the work that she's doing um but it is incredible and and i think what you're watching when you watch jody is the emergence of probably one of the greatest talents over the next several decades
0: i saw her first time killing eve and i was just like who is this person she's so incredible and yeah. doing so many different voices and stuff yeah so
2: yeah yeah and you know when it came to austin um the truth is i I didn't really know his work. I'd seen him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and and I met him at a restaurant in L.A., and he came up and shook my hand, and I just immediately was like, this is the most beautiful person I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and, and he is, inside and out. Um, but again, the reason you cast him isn't just for that. The reason you cast him is because in this role, the central relationship in this film is a love triangle. Uh, but it's not a, two guys chasing after the same girl. It's actually Kathy's character, Jody's character, And Tom's character Johnny are both infatuated with this young man they both want him for things she wants to marry him and does and he wants him to take over the club and so I needed a I needed an actor that people just wanted things from and that's Austin it's undeniable when you meet him he's actually more attractive in person Um, and so then the last was to kind of you know cast the leader of this club and that's just you're just lucky Tom Hardy said yes, you know, because he's he's actually not really an actor. He's 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 a force of nature. Um, he's like a hurricane or a tornado. And when he sits in front of the camera, just crazy, crazy things happen that are really fun to watch. And then we could talk about the other thirteen amazing actors that are in this film, from Michael Shannon to Boyd Holbrook to. Norman Reedus, to Paul Sparks, to Bo Knapp, to Carl Gloosman, to Damon Harriman, to Emery Cohen, um, it's an embarrassment of riches.
0: I'm so excited to see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
4: um, if, like, a lot of your movies do portray like this sense of brotherhood, and because uh, with Shotgun Stories, the, the it was really the main theme of feeling having this kind of opposition but you're close to them in a way that you cannot be close to anybody else so how did you go about portraying that like i know you have a your brother's performing at the um the the showing so did you take that in mind when you were showing this relationship between these this love triangle as you said between like in a kind of like yearning sense of trying to get buying for approval in a way that isn't particularly romantic?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, to start about my brother, I mean, he was the first one to introduce me to the book. And he actually recorded a song on their album, Nobody's Darlings called Bike Riders. And so, you know, for the last 19, 18 years, that's been showing up in my Playlist, and, and as a reminder of like, hey, you really got to write that film. Um, so, Ben was a direct inspiration for this film. Um, you know, brotherhood is a—it's a—it's a really interesting relationship, um, even if it's not in the familial sense. Um, and the way I tried to build that in the film. Honestly, wasn't through these main three main characters. It's it's really through all this kind of constellation of of characters around them. You get these amazing opportunities, and a lot of it is enunciated in the interviews from the book to just give them this this one moment to share some part of their psychology. Um, and by doing that, they start to um, in the bike rider specifically, they start to overlap. Like you start to understand. That they share reasons, the biggest being that they just don't feel like they belong in society, um, so they belong together. Damon Herriman's character, Brucey, he says it, um, and and this begins to be like this unifying thought that so many of us don't feel like we fit. Um, we're in desperate search for identity, and it's just a fact because we're social creatures that we turn to to groups to give us that identity. And the more unique that group is, the more unique your identity is. And that's really what was happening here. So Shotgun Stories was about a very specific feeling of, what if something violent happened to one of my brothers? Um, How would I want to respond? How would that work? It was also about an anti-Western about revenge and the fruitlessness of it. But this was more about like a shared psychology. And sometimes you think it's BS. Like you look at these guys like, what do you have, you're, you're white males in <laughs> the middle of the Midwest. What do you have to feel like an outsider about? But even that's pretty interesting. Um, I think anytime you get to hear someone honestly trying to describe, you know, how they feel and how they don't fit, it's, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a connection to the rest of us.
5: Um, how much did you deviate from the source material of, of Danny Daniel's book? Uh, like it—it sounds like you know, initially you were, you know, really intimately up in the interviews and, and the, even the, you know, the conversations that didn't make it into the book. But along the way, yeah, what sort of dimensions were invented?
2: I think it was really about the club itself. You know, having made loving, um, I was so specific about that film needing to honor their story. So I didn't put anything in that script that I couldn't prove that I would read or that I would heard from their, you know, family members or something. Um, with this, I did not want to be telling the outlaw story for lots of reasons. They scare me. Um, and and I, don't, I didn't want to do the research necessary to tell that story. That wasn't the, the goal. Um, so from the beginning, I knew I wanted to fictionalize that trajectory. Johnny's character in my film is a reluctant he lets the club grow reluctantly uh, I don't know if that was the case and I didn't really care um, I wanted it to be my trajectory so really that's when it started to, to de- deviate from the book and it was really from page one even if page one is is borrowing exact dialogue from, from Kathy um, the, the trajectory that I've set off is going to be a fi- fictional club And it's going to move and grow the way that I need it to, to tell my story, which I think represents kind of some bigger ideas. Um, I really didn't want to bend um, the themes to fit the real story. I wanted to actually bend the real story to fit the themes, if that makes sense.
5: So like the love triangle? All me.
2: Yeah. All me, you know. Um, I made this metaphor in a conversation the other day. It was like walking into a room and seeing all the ornaments for a Christmas tree laid out on the floor, but there's no tree. Um, you have all these beautiful things that you want to use and you know of are of value, but you've got to find some place to put them. So I just had to build the tree.
5: Absolutely. So when you're talking about kind of, I guess how did you find balance between like romanticizing these specific, you know, fictionalized characters um, without romanticizing the outlaws as a whole. You know what
2: I mean? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, there there is a tension there. And there's a tension in Danny's book. And, and when I got to know Danny, he spoke about it as well, you know? Because the photographs are romantic. The interviews are not. Mm-hmm. Like, you read the interviews and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> like These are rough. These are rough people. And I thought it would be really beautiful if you could have a film that that kind of did the same thing. Um, not to go back to Goodfellas. Goodfellas is different in that sense. Goodfellas really does, it, it lures you into the world in the first hour and the second hour just gets real dark. This has a similar structure, um, but that's not really getting to the answer for your question. I think the truth is, by using some of their own words and some of their own feelings, if you understand the psychology between these people, we identify with them. Um, and that's that's less about romanticizing. Mm-hmm. That's just about understanding. Yeah. And I don't think, no matter how violent or aggressive or toxic people are, it's interesting to hear from them. Um, and it's very interesting if some of the things they say you actually identify with. That puts the viewer in a bit of a conundrum, you know? Because you're forced to actually see people that you don't want any association with as humans. Um, And all of a sudden, that becomes pretty interesting. So the way I think I dealt with it was I tried to find those words in those interviews that really spoke, spoke honestly about why they were behaving the way they behaved, like why they operated the way they operate. But then you also have these other things. You have this incredible music. You've got a guy like Austin Butler in some of the coolest clothes with the coolest hair on the coolest bike. Like, that part's going to take care of itself. Like, the romance is built in. So then it was really my job to find the psychology behind it so that so that they aren't actually just these beautiful objects floating around screen.
5: Uh, I hate to change the subject, but uh, you were talking about the, your cast not earlier. And I can only talk about Michael Shannon. Because like, his on the screening this weekend as well you're a producer on that one, right? Yep. Uh, so I'm assuming you've seen it. I have. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about his film and yeah. like what kind of storyteller has Michael Shannon become? Has he, well, has he been influenced by the way you make films or by any of the prolific films? No, we should <laughs>
2: ask him that question when he gets here because uh, he's never copped to that. I think, um, you know, Mike called me and was like, I'm going to direct my first film. I'd like you to produce it. And I didn't even need to know what it was. You know, that was just a yes, because he's my brother, essentially, my fourth brother. Um, And, you know, Mike has been in the theater for so long. Uh, He has his own theater company in Chicago, the Red Orchid Theater. And this, I believe, was a play that was actually put on at that theater company. Um, So he had the material that he wanted to work with. And uh, I've always known that Mike was, you know, usually the smartest guy in the room. So um, it wasn't hard to attach myself to a project that, um, that he was gonna be the creative force behind. Uh, I gave him advice whenever he wanted it, uh, but, but it was so interesting. Anytime you would question him about a thing that he was doing, he had such a beautiful answer for it. At some point, you just kind of step back and go, all right, go go do your thing. And I think he's made a really beautiful film. I think it's a very challenging film, you know? I mean it's about a school shooting so um, but it's it's about a part of that that is that is um, that is really really interesting it's about how the community deals with it after the fact and in particular the mother of the school shooter and um, played by Judy Greer who's phenomenal in this film um, so yeah I, I, I couldn't be more excited and kind of more proud um, as a friend of Mike's and um, to give him a venue to to, to play this film. Um, Because it is challenging, um, but it's certainly worthy. Mm -hmm. Thanks Thanks for asking about that. Um, Um, Can we say anything about the Cinema Society in general? Yeah. Catherine's just been sitting here. I was actually, next my camera. next question was yeah, for go. Catherine. Oh, good. Go. Uh, oh, everybody's tired
0: of <laughs> hearing
3: from me. They hear from me uh,
5: all the <laughs> time. Right? Uh, yeah. So uh, Catherine, could you tell us about the Filmland 2023 and how the has the Civil society changed the past seven years and how you're gonna inspiring the film community here? Yeah, um,
3: so Filmland 2023 is basically Jeff Nichols and Bike Riders um, but we also had a great film in Arkansas last weekend I don't know if you guys were able to be here but there's a huge crowd for that and um, I got to call the filmmaker that won the $60,000 Panavision grant and she started crying and she's flying in and Jeff is her hero so she's like so excited that he's going to be presenting, um, presenting the award to her but those kinds of moments are really gratifying because it's, it's actually really hard what we do and um, the staff can attest um raising the money and um all of the, the all of the work that goes into festivals behind the scenes and doing this kind of starting this new organization in arkansas isn't easy and so seeing the results of that come full circle is really um inspiring to me personally and it makes me feel uh reinvigorated to keep going um but we also, you know, this this weekend coming up is, I think, a great example of the vision that you know Jeff and I both had for a film festival in Arkansas. In that, it's not really a festival; it's a single venue with uh, programming for four days, and it's a it's built for the bandwidth of our audience, really. And um, we have workshops that are sponsored by Wingate and Rockefeller, and um, that Jeff is going to host with the with. Peter DeBruge, the chief film critic for Variety, and his directing workshop as well, which I'm super excited about. Um, we've been talking about doing that for a while. Yeah, I know. Um, and then, you know, we have Eric LaRue on Saturday night, and then we also have Lady Bird Diaries with the producer, Kim Reynolds, coming on Monday night. Um, and then Hard Miles, Daniel Hanna, who has been screening films with us for since we began. I think he won one of our early audience awards, um, so having a filmmaker like that, you know, come into our curated section is also really cool, and that's on Tuesday night. So I think it's a great example of, of where we've come from. Um, and I I and I say this over and over, but every year we don't just get more selections for Film in Arkansas; we they get so much better. And I. Um, I don't want to take credit for that but I also I also like to see it's so inspiring and it makes you know I think film is really bubbling up um in the collective conscious and I think it's the most accessible art form of our time and so I'm you know I love being the spokesperson for that in Arkansas you know one of them in, Ar- in Arkansas I think it's a beautiful uh way to make a living
1: uh oh, this is my last question talking more about the ACS and uh I think I've seen Jeff mention this and how an inspiration for it was the Austin Cinema Society that Richard Linklater started and how it created a really blossoming film community and industry in Austin. Is that sort of something you'll hope to see happen here? With
3: We're just waiting for $5 million from the city of Little Rock. <laughs> <laughs> um, but <laughs> no, I mean, really that was that, you know, that was the inspiration. And after Jeff and I talked, I went down and met with a lot of the, the um, people there that started, Rebecca Green and um, Holly. Yeah, um, Holly Herrick. Holly Herrick. And we really just kind of ripped off their design completely um, and are proud to say yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, the- Except the, for we're statewide. Uh,
2: the, <laughs> you know, the, the key- you know, the key has always been not to just have a film festival. Mm -hmm. Um, the key was to have programming throughout the year and there's a direct relationship between, because we're a nonprofit, the amount of money we bring in to operate and the amount that we get to do. Um, the more money we bring in to operate, the more we'll do. Um, and it's very difficult. I mean, times are, are challenging for everybody right now. They're challenging for every nonprofit, certainly. Um, but that's the goal because the the thinking is all ships rise. Um, it's the way I felt coming out of North Carolina School of the Arts with David Green and Danny McBride and Jody Hill and um, Craig Zobel, the, an amazing group of filmmakers. And there there wasn't a competitive spirit. There was this spirit of we're all on the outside anyway, so let's all let's all help each other. And and we have that ability here in Arkansas um, because. I think we are somewhat an insulated community, you know, um, by benefit of being kind of here in the middle of the country. And so if we can connect these people, and I think something that that Catherine was talking about, the hope is the reason these these films maybe are starting to get better and and these ideas are getting better is because of the conversation. Um, Because you don't do this alone. The auteur theory is a lie. It takes a community of people to make a film. And so... The Cinema Society is really just an attempt to connect that community. That's it. It's a hub, and uh, and it really takes all of the people around, you know, to activate that. And if they do, there's tremendous power in that. Uh, and that's really that's why we're here. It's why we just try to keep it going. I mean, Catherine's the one, and her staff are the ones that really do it year round. I get to show up on occasion and and you know
3: raise a little money for us blather and raise some money but like
2: you know but also I mean the the thing I get to do is bring my friends because I had a very real experience through college um kind of demystifying the idea of making films it felt so foreign it was a joke I had already made shocking stories and people would say what do you do and I'd say I make movies and I would laugh because it felt so absurd it felt like an absurd thing to say well it's not It's, and, and, and if we can put that idea, I was really lucky. um, I just got here from San Francisco and I got to hang out with Ryan Coogler, who is a brilliant filmmaker. And I was talking to him about this mission specifically. We're going to work really hard to get him to come here and show Mm -hmm. some of his films. But as soon as I started talking, he was like, you can't hit what you can't see. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and that target of becoming a filmmaker seemed so foreign. I couldn't see it. And if we can bring people, um, like Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain and Adam Driver and Richard Linkletter and you know, David Lowry, these brilliant people that we've had come, if you can if you can show people the target, then they have a lot better chance of hitting it.
3: And then also just to add to that, then the resources to help them with their first project or second project with these camera grants. I mean, Panavision doing that for us is huge. That's huge. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons the submissions have increased so much this year because you know there's a there's a prize that can really really help you get it started. And John Michael Powell, who won last year is in Northwest Arkansas in right now prep, in prep with and part of the reason he's able to do that was the grant that he won last year. So that's really the whole idea is that it's full circle.
0: Uh, my question for Catherine was just about Sunday's event, which is a little bigger and different than most film and event events. How did you decide to pull out the stops for this thing for Sunday? It
3: wasn't an easy choice, honestly. Um, but we we really wanted it to be, a you know, we've talked about having a fundraiser of sorts like all other nonprofits on the planet, and we've never done that. Um, and obviously, you know, ticket sales never cover our costs. So we really need sponsors and um the community to come through in that way just so we can sustain ourselves, um, but we decided to make this you know, a big event to help sustain our programming here at AMFA. Um, ticket prices are more expensive than normal um, and what that was a challenge for us because we always like to be as accessible as possible. Um, we've offered free tickets to this event to all of the Arkansas filmmakers that, that um, were part of um, the festival this year. And then um, we also have free tickets for students, but we also want to kind of tap into the market of the other nonprofits and and have, it's not a gala, but it's a, you know, it's a benefit to help keep our programming going and be able to do more of that. Um, But the event is the um, Arkansas premiere of Bike Riders, which is thrilling. And Jeff talked about earlier. uh, and then a Q&A with Peter de Bruges, which is, in my opinion, worth the price of admission right there. Um, and then we'll all move, the audience will move into the cultural living room, um, and we have a live auction with a lot of really cool stuff that Jeff um, has allowed us to auction off. Um, and the live auctioneer I spoke with is its going to be a fun auction. He's wearing his all of his motorcycle garb, and he said, should I wear my suit and my cowboy hat?" Or my full motorcycle outfit, and I said full motor, you know, full motorcycle outfit. Um, we've open bar. Um, the community is really delivering on donated food, so we have Yellow Rocket. Like every single restaurant is giving us um, food for this event, as well as the roots. So um, an open bar. We now have donated sake. It's going nice. to be a rager. Oh, and Lucero's acoustic show, um, which I'm so excited about, and feel just feels like it has to um it had to be that way um, I guess, can
2: yeah. we tell them about one of the auction items yeah that a... yeah go ahead so um danny lyon has actually donated a signed original print from the book to be donated um no it's cool we'll show them later um but it's an extraordinarily generous gift from danny and yeah. so uh so yeah hopefully someone shows up and wants that mm-hmm. and, and wants also, to pay for it. And also
3: a behind the scenes photo of Austin on the bike.
2: He's what? actually not on the bike, but yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It's two photos from basically onset photos um, that I'm going to sign. And uh, yeah, Literally. the Danny one's way cooler, but um, they're all cool, I guess. I know, I like uh, the Austin one. Yeah. The Austin belt was pretty good, but, but yeah, I mean, this is um, in a way Sunday's different because it, it has to be a, a fundraiser. Um, we, we need it to keep operating. Because the truth is the bike riders is going gonna, gonna to be okay. People are going to get to see that film. Um, and if the money we generate, and the, the, the funding we generate through Sunday allows us to bring films that people might not see otherwise or conversations with, with um, talent that they might not have otherwise, that's really, that's really what we're doing here.
4: Um, I know you talked about like how bringing these you know successful people in the industry provides students with like a goal like, like to see that tangible goal right in front of them is really powerful but like how do you want this to affect young creatives like not even in film but like young creatives all around Arkansas and show them you know this is something that we support and we support you
2: yeah I mean you just have to show up you know like the first thing is we have to exist and and, and continue to exist um, just to be I guess important example but really it's a tool um, you know to provide that glimpse into what's possible um, yeah you know you, you you really just want I think there's a there's this thinking that because film is, and movies are such a big part of our culture that the conversation will just exist on its own. But I don't think it does. I think it's something you have to foster, especially in terms of the idea of making stuff. Um, if there's a f- young filmmaker out there in Arkansas, he does not or she does not need um, the Cinema Society to exist to reach their goals. But, but that doesn't mean we can't affect... You know that path and how they do that, um, and possibly amplify that. Um, That's that's really that's really the idea.
3: And I I, also to add to that, a lot of these celebrity appearances are not. I mean, yes, we want yes we want to meet and talk to these people, but it's also a way for us to raise awareness for ACS, which then helps us fund a lot of our educational programming and year-round programming year-round um that like our filmmaking lab for teen girls and you know we've wanted to do a co-ed lab since we started I can't get funding for it um and because the number you know you start looking at national grants for these programs and we're not accessible for them we're not they, they won't fund us because our numbers are so low so like our filmmaking lab for teen girls we change the their I would Go, be so bold as to say we've changed a lot of their lives and a lot of them will go to film school instead of whatever track they were on and we help them get into these film schools but you know it's 10 to 15 girls a year so for the larger national grants it's it's really hard to get funding for the for programs that are that small and until we have a larger filmmaking community that's really showing up to support it's very hard to get that funding so you know I say this at the beginning of every screening and I'm passionate about it, but if we could just get our filmmaking community to show up, then that starts helping the overall ecosystem of film in Arkansas. Cause then they connect, then they make more films, then, then it all starts happening. But you know, we have to have a way to raise money for the thing for programs like the filmmaking lab for teen girls. We have ideas for so many things. It's just finding the funding for them.
4: A follow-up question would be so is your end goal just to have to be able to harbor this like community in film in Arkansas, just to have that be as plentiful as possible? Yes.
3: Yeah. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, and and for it to be sustainable. And then my selfish goal is that someone like me and someone like Jeff can make our films in Arkansas. Um, and and that our producers will want to do that as well and that we can every every film we ever make we make in arkansas because we have the resources we need here we have the incentives we need here we have the crew we need here we have the support all of those things i really feel like arkansas would be such an amazing you know production hub too so
2: yeah all right Feels pretty good, guys. Feels pretty. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys talking about the cinema society and the film. So, appreciate it. I'd you for talking about Michael Richie.
4: <laughs> yeah, you bet. Go watch that movie. I will, it's hard to find.
2: For sure. In case you're
4: wondering, it was Positively True Adventures of the Alleged Texas Cheerleader, Vernon
3: Mock.
1: That is a long title. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I can find it in the filmography somewhere. <laughs>
0: I'm so glad I got to do this press junket. It was a whole lot of fun, and I've been hoping for a long time that I'd get to talk with Jeff Nichols at some point, so I'm glad that finally happened. If you are new to this podcast, I encourage you to check out some of our other episodes. We do an episode every other week about movies new and old. I have a different filmmaker or film critic join me for each episode. Recently, we've done episodes on films like Dumb Money, Passages, the A24 horror film Talk to Me, Barbie, Oppenheimer. Asteroid City. Uh, We've also been doing a series on the films of Darren Aronofsky, so looking at some films from years past. Arthouse Garage is the snob-free film podcast, which just means we strive never to talk over anyone's head. We don't trash films, so you're never going to hear us talking bad about a movie you love. And we also want to be welcoming to new cinephiles, and people from all walks of life. Coming up, we're planning an episode on Killers of the Flower Moon, the new film from Martin Scorsese, and stay tuned after that with awards season coming up, there will be lots of good movies to discuss. It's the most wonderful time of the year for a movie podcaster, so I'm very excited about the next few months. And with that, thank you so much for listening to Arthouse Garage. We have a few years' worth of episodes. You can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. Learn more at appallingproductions.com. If you want to support Arthouse Garage, become a patron over at patreon.com slash arthousegarage or find a link in the show notes. You can also buy an Arthouse Garage t-shirt at arthousegarage.com slash shop. If you want to support us without spending any money, leave a rating or review in your podcast app, that is hugely helpful. Stay in the loop about Art House Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter at arthousegarage.com slash subscribe, or you can email me directly, andrew at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage in all those places or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free.